0: Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions?
1: Yes, I'm always freezing and he overheats.
0: It's temperature balancing so you can sleep better together.
1: But can it help keep us asleep?
0: It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable.
2: So I'll have more energy for yoga.
0: Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and Adjustable Base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.
1: I am back. Hi. Uh-oh. Oh. Hi. Hi. <coughs> Hi. 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 <laughs> Hi. All right, ready? Yeah. <laughs>
3: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor.
1: And I'm Marcel Cosman.
3: Today we're bringing you our discussion of part two of the newly released Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I don't know about you, Marcel, but I'm getting deep into the fan fiction aesthetic. I'm (laughs) shipping things all over the place. I'm shipping my microphone and my audio recorder right now. Sexy! At first, they seemed like enemies, forced to work closely together, but resenting the proximity. But over time, not despite, but because of their differences, they found themselves drawn to one another.
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure you're doing that wrong but like Mm -hmm. don't worry about it we'll get you sorted out we'll get you sorted out in the sorting chat (laughs) so we don't have like a whole lot to cover in the sorting chat mostly just three things that we couldn't find anywhere else to stick them So Uh -uh. I want to start with a question Mm -hmm. uh, and it is what the heck is Lily doing strolling around Godric's Hollow with baby Harry when they're supposed to be hiding from Lord Voldemort?
3: <gasps> I mean, she's providing stage business, I guess. Okay, so so
1: you propose that
3: possibly all of Godric's Hollow is protected, which is like obviously not the case. It's for sure um, not the case. So like, it's just that one house which was hidden and made to look like a different house. Mm-hmm. So they just went out for a quick walk. <laughs>
1: Just, like, out for a stroll. (laughs) And, like, the stage directions note that she pauses to put a blanket on Harry. And, like, (laughs) it just seems like a really chill fall activity for Mm -hmm. someone whose life is in danger. Yes.
3: I feel like the point sort of narratively is... It's for the people who are watching to, like, amp up the tragedy of the fact that she's about to die Mm -hmm. by being like, oh, it's like she has no idea. (laughs) But it's like she actually totally knew that her life was in danger. So
1: I guess since we're since we're fan fictioning sexy, let's imagine like a better scenario that would have amped up the feelings of the audience. Like maybe lily potter like pressed against the window just like gently stroking the glass looking That's out good. at the That's busy gross. people That's in, the, in the street you're are, lily in the window people who are trapped on the other side of the window
3: <laughs> like lily trying desperately to turn boring household objects into toys for her child because she cannot go out and buy him anything
1: <laughs> yeah here's a here's a spatula Harry. I almost said Elliot because I forgot what we were doing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Oops. Uh, anyway, okay, so speaking of narrative gaps, around the same part of the story, while well, they're all back in time in Godric's Hollow trying to figure out how to deal with Voldemort's imminent arrival, mm-hmm. and Albus suggests that they will be able to find the ingredients to Polyjuice Potion and just brew it right up. Mm-hmm. And everybody else like people people take issue with that plan but not for the obvious reason which is how long does it take to brew apologies potion like at
1: least a month
3: yeah yeah it's a it's a really bad plan and nobody there is like sorry no that's not how that works
1: yeah i don't know it's it's really strange Mm -hmm. um maybe okay maybe the fact that no one thinks about the length of time it takes to brew is indicative of how stressed out they all are by the task at hand.
3: Good. Excellent reading.
1: Okay, super. Yeah. Good. Glad yeah. we glad we, we got through that one. Okay. Yeah. And then the last thing we wanted to talk about is how the whole of history rests on Neville Longbottom. It sure
3: does. <laughs> I mean, that's the amazing thing, right? So you... You're in this dark timeline, C, timeline C, A, B, and C. And in timeline C, Harry is dead, but Harry's death is not what triggered it. What triggered Mm -hmm. it is Neville's death. Yeah. And arguably Cedric's lack of death. Right. Um, So, like, Harry's death is an outcome of what happens to these other characters. But, like, that's so interesting for so many reasons, including... What it suggests about how, like, you know, Neville could have been the chosen one, but mm-hmm. wasn't because of a decision Voldemort made. But this kind of implies that, like, in some way, Neville still was.
1: Mm-hmm. Harry and Neville's uh, value and their their characters, I guess, just mm-hmm. overlap in so many, like, fascinating ways. Um, and even though Neville doesn't appear physically in the play... I think it's really fascinating that he still has such a such a significant and important contribution to the story overall. Mm-hmm. But I wonder why he wasn't in the play. I know, it's very strange. There are like ample opportunities to just have him going by, like, hey guys. Dropping by Professor McGonagall's office.
3: Maybe he is, maybe he's constantly just walking by in the background and he just doesn't have a speaking part.
1: He's <laughs> Just always holding a plant. Sexy <laughs>
3: Hey Marcel, if you're gonna ship two books together, which books would they be?
1: Um, I'd probably ship like two very light paperback books together because the shipping charges would be a lot lower. <laughs> Boo!
3: Let's delve deeper into the homoerotic undertones of print <laughs> culture and materiality in flourish and blots. Sexy. <laughs> So, uh huh. Let's talk about theater.
1: All right. Okay, Hannah. So, in the interview that you did with Jeremy Mason, we got to learn about what it is that plays do and why it is that some stories, some stories, make really good plays. Right? Mm-hmm. Theater has certain affordances; so you can tell a story in a specific way on the stage that you can't necessarily do um, through other mediums. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess what I'm wondering is what does the theater afford this story? Riddle me this.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like there's something about the like, non-linearity of it and the mm-hmm. way that it's sort of messing around with time, which is like, obviously, those are things that you can do with narrative fiction and that people mm-hmm. have done with narrative fiction. But that sort of like multiple retellings of the same storyline work in interesting ways when you get to see them reperformed mm-hmm. again and again where you can see a sort of reproduction of the same figures on the stage but in different relations to each other like I think those kinds of stories are stories that are often told in theater or in film mm mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's something about that like that desire to sort of play out a variety of hypothetical timelines
1: mm-hmm.
3: that might work well as a performance, performance not specifically theater.
1: Yeah, I I was thinking about this too when I was um sort of flipping back through the various scenes and I was thinking about how um I I wonder if one of the main benefits to telling the story as a play also has to do with like the way in which you can bring the audience into the to the um, experience mm-hmm. in a in a slightly different way. So like a really good movie definitely has you like completely invested in what's happening on screen and you forget that you're sitting in an audience. but I was particularly taken with the way that um, it's described when the dementors come after. Hermione in timeline C Mm -hmm. when okay so this is after they've gotten back from aborting the mission to humiliate Cedric Diggory and Mm -hmm. it's on page 191 uh, and the stage directions say suddenly from around the auditorium the feel of the breath of an icy wind black robes arise around people black robes that become black shapes that become dementors so it seems like the plan here is to have the dementors emerging from the entire theater and not Mm. just like from the sides of the stage So like, I feel like the way that the play is using the space of the theater is really interesting Mm -hmm. and really uh, exciting in terms of bringing the audience into the action a little
3: Mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, I agree. There are moments when the description of how something is being imagined on stage, you know, a sort of shadow taking the form of Voldemort or a moment where I wrote down like, poor sound guys because this is just like an outrageous thing to to write as a stage direction but at one point it describes a sound so it says Harry hears a noise a hissing noise and then there is a noise like death a noise like nothing else we've heard before <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, uh, just imagine the sound guys getting that note, but um, it made. There are so many moments like that that just made me think, like, God, I just want to see this performed. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to see how you actually imagined this on stage, and that's something like you can create a sound that has a visceral impact on your audience, and you don't mm-hmm. actually have to have words for it. Right. Because it's a performance. So like mm-hmm. exactly some of the moments where I was like reading the stage directions and being like, this is absurd. Those are probably some of the moments that are the most interesting in performance.
1: So as much as we like ripped the stage directions a new one in the yeah. last episode, in this yeah. episode, <laughs> we're like, yeah, this would be great. we
3: <laughs> yeah. to see I this take, performed. I take it all back. I mean, it's just it's interesting how like because we're reading a remediation of the play probably a lot of the things that make the least sense or seem the most weird in this reading are the things that are the most specific to the medium it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. are the, the hardest to picture or scenes that don't seem interesting on paper, but would be really amazing performed because they're specific to a stage performance. <laughs> so one of the other uh affordances that is specific to theater that doesn't really come across in our reading um is cross casting Mm -hmm. it's quite common for plays to cast the same actors in multiple roles sometimes that is simply a function of like you don't need to cast five people to play five different parts if those are all small parts and they're not on the stage at the same time you can just you know if you're If you're in the chorus of a big production, you might end up playing a ton of different roles. Mm -hmm. But often that is used deliberately to draw connections between different characters and sort of thematic resonances. Mm -hmm. So the example that always pops to mind for me is um, Angels in America. It's very sort of deliberately done and you need to know who the cross casting is to actually understand the story. And uh, it is also a prominent feature in Hamilton, the musical. Ooh! So there you go.
1: Yeah, it is also historically part of Shakespearean theater on Shakespeare's stage. It was like a necessity. The same actor who plays Cordelia in King Lear also plays Lear's fool, and there's really
3: yeah yeah. Oh, and that's super interesting.
1: A moment at the end so like one of the problems with King Lear is what happens to the fool because the fool just kind of disappears at some point point. and then when Lear is holding Cordelia's body I think this is when it happens he says something like and my poor fool is dead so the fact that the same actor plays both the fool and Cordelia makes that
3: resonate in different ways
1: yeah exactly yeah. so like is Lear talking about his dead daughter who is the fool or is he talking about his like literal fool who is gone huh that's interesting yeah
3: Yeah. there's another uh, as we framed it sort of theater specific affordance right that you really can't produce an effect like that Mm -hmm. in prose no Um, that's just not how it works
1: nor in film not really Mm -mm. not in the same way anyway that's really interesting if only neil were here we could ask him why it is that you can't do that in cinema in the same way hey neil Neil
3: oh um so let's talk about yeah. the doubled up casting in this play yeah let's talk about did, who's cross cast
1: did any did any of them stand out to you in particular
3: hmm I mean they're fascinating across the board mm-hmm. um Amos Diggory and Albus Dumbledore Mm-hmm. legitimating versus delegitimating the choices that Harry made Yeah, right. Like it sort of sets them up as these pairs of like, so on the one hand, you've got Amos telling Harry that like, he made the wrong decisions and unnecessarily sacrificed people along the way. And then you have Dumbledore sort of saying like, it only could have played out the way that it did. And it ends up being Harry questioning Dumbledore's claim that things had to be the way that they were.
1: Um, I'm really interested in the fact that the Trolley Witch and Professor McGonagall are played by the same actor, because the implication in that for me is that Hogwarts doesn't start at Hogwarts, that the institution begins at platform nine and three quarters. Mm -hmm. um, And the like the rage that Professor McGonagall expresses about albus and scorpius leaving the train and stuff mm-hmm. the fact that that's sort of like a natural carryover from the rage of the trolley witch who failed to keep them on there in the first place
3: oh that's interesting what about moaning myrtle and lily potter
1: so i <laughs> i would have been more <laughs> interested if the actor who played lily potter senior also played jimmy <laughs> yeah I mean it seems like like the more obvious parallel what strikes you about that moaning Myrtle and Lily
3: like some humanizing like part of the humanizing of moaning myrtle right like she's she's mm-hmm. played so yeah. much for humor in the movies, and in the books she's so mm-hmm. much just a like a silly character, and what's mm-hmm. done with her in the play like at the textual level is like giving her a full name trying to give her a history, trying to take her a little bit more seriously. And I think sort of casting her as the same actor who's playing, you know, this very serious, very beloved and central character sort of reinforces that. Mm -hmm. Like, here is somebody who is like an actual person. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We should maybe stop treating so poorly.
1: (laughs) So I'm also interested in uh, Uncle Vernon severus snape and lord voldemort all being played by the same actor i think that that's really interesting Mm -hmm. um and similar actually similarly aunt petunia madam hooch and dolores umbridge Mm -hmm. um i kind of want to put madam hooch in brackets because i'm i don't have any particular feelings about that teacher Mm -hmm. um but they're
3: very similar
1: trios right
3: like the the aunt and uncle a teacher a villain Mm-hmm. like each of them plays those three sets
1: yeah exactly it's interesting huh
3: yeah i mean again when you think about the way that like a reproduction of the same person on stage suggests these sorts of resonances between these different figures it draws these sort of links between like your life at home your life at school the larger political stakes of this world and it takes those things that like the books have been working really hard to tie together and it mm-hmm. ties them together Visually, by making them actually the same person.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Let's talk about one last instance of cross casting, which is the cross casting of Hagrid and the Sorting Hat.
1: So that's not a cross casting that would have occurred to me.
3: Yeah, I mean, I see them both as these figures that are sort of like institutions of Hogwarts, mm-hmm. um, that are sort of established with like the comforting, familiar aspects of Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. You know, that are always there that help make it orderly that make it make sense as a space, especially because Hagrid is the one who brings Harry into the wizarding world and gives him his Mm -hmm. place there. And then the sorting hat is the thing that literally gives you your place in the wizarding world. And so they both seem to me to sort of represent the institution itself, um Mm -hmm. and like what it means to find your place. Which is interesting within the play as a whole because a lot of this play is about resisting the assumption that everybody has the same experience at Hogwarts as Harry yeah. does, that everybody finds their place as easily as mm-hmm. Harry does. Right. So the sorting hat is no longer the one that like comfortably places you where you belong, but it becomes this, this source right from the beginning, this source of tension for somebody like Albus who really doesn't know mm-hmm. where he belongs, you know? And it's interesting that Albus doesn't seem to have a relationship with Hagrid. Yeah. Yeah. And that Haggard you know mostly shows up in the flashbacks, yeah, so cross casting I would be super interested if for anybody who has seen the play, if you wanted to uh to holler at us and tell us about you know, for example, whether the cross casting is at all visually apparent, yeah, like can yeah. you tell that some of these actors are the same person? Does it sort of strike you when you're watching it, or is that is there an effort made to cover that up, and it feels more like it was just a sort of like have all these actors let's use them more than once
1: see i'm pretty sure the point of fan fiction is to explore alternative possibilities for actual real characters in your fandom and thus challenge the hegemony of one particular narrative perspective not like make your stapler and mug pretend to kiss sexy still confused Let's untangle the complexities of shifting narratives in The Boy Who Narrated.
3: Yay, we have so much to talk about in this segment. (laughs) So I'm going to jump right in with um, something I remember. It's a conversation I remember hearing on some kind of podcast. Okay. Uh, And it was about the new Star Wars movies Mm -hmm. and the fact that when... The Star Wars extended universe novels sort of came in. A thing that they did was expand the universe outwards. Okay. And with the new movies that are being made now, mm-hmm. all of those extended universe novels were declared non-canon and the movies are now the canon. And what the movies do is fixate on that original trio. Huh. They continue to center around Luke and Leia and Han And like their children and nieces and nephews and backstories. And it becomes sort of this question or, you know, what this, whatever podcast this was I was listening to asked was like, why do these new sort of expanded universe stories still so much want to fixate on the same characters rather than actually expanding Mm -hmm. and giving us this new perspective? And it suggested that there's something conservative about it. It's a sort of conservative logic of like modern movie making, which is like in order to Mm -hmm. make sure that we get enough interested viewers, we need Mm -hmm. to stick with the same characters. And that really like, that's what struck me about Cursed Child as a sort of sequel narrative is that it has the similar conservative logic of let's not actually take Elvis and Scorpius outside of the original seven books and give them a new story Mm -hmm. and add something new to the wizarding world it's like let's use the two of them as a device to obsessively circle back Mm -hmm. on the narrative of our original three on teasing out more about that story Mm -hmm. um a sort of yeah this sort of obsessive spooling around the same plot points that makes this feel more like an extended epilogue than an actual new entry right. in this world. Yeah, That's what struck me about the narrative structure of this play and about the sort of time travel device. What a lot of readers have said feels fan fiction-y to them, feels more to me like the kind of thing the Star Wars movies are doing. Mm-hmm. right? It feels more to me like this kind of conservative desire to stay focused on the same characters, and keep retelling the same story and fleshing out more details of the same story than expanding outwards and i'm not sure if it's a sort of a chicken and the egg thing like maybe narratives are doing that because that's what fan fiction does and so that's how you provide fan service and that's how you tell stories you're sure people will like mm-hmm. or maybe that's a misrepresentation of fan fiction and fan fiction actually does a better job of of expanding outwards and telling new hmm. stories
1: huh that's really interesting especially considering the Harry Potter extended universe that's being made into films right now and Pottermore Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff that like in the face of those things happening, we get this play that is released in book form for readers that does obsessively focus on that trio. So part of me wonders if maybe the timing is deliberate in that this book that does so obsessively focus on our original trio, kind of mitigates any sense of disappointment in extended universe apparatuses, I'll just say, um, that don't have anything to do with that original trio. Uh, Yeah, is it,
3: is it exciting to have more Wizarding World stuff being produced that has nothing to do with Harry? Or is that disappointing for people Mm -hmm. yeah again i would i would be interested in hearing from people like when you think about rolling producing sort of sanctioned new material set in this world are you excited at the idea of it sort of leaving harry behind entirely and just going Mm -hmm. off in different directions or is that like do you sort of lose interest are you like well i'm not I'm not in it for your world. I'm in it for Mm -hmm. these characters who I'm emotionally invested in.
1: Yeah. I wonder if a useful comparison might be the way that um, in Doctor Who, when there's a new doctor, it's like a really common thing for fans of the previous doctor to go through a real process of grieving, right? Because like your doctor is Mm -hmm. gone and now there's a new doctor with whole new adventures and new interests and new companions and new whatever and like all of those things that you loved about the previous doctor those are just left behind
3: yeah I mean it's a risky it's a it's a risky thing built right into the fandom of Doctor Who
1: mm-hmm. which is
3: part of what makes it so interesting and no we are not going to start a Doctor Who podcast. Oh no there are plenty um, of Doctor Who podcasts you don't need us. It's taken care of. <laughs> just go listen to Verity. It's good. it's fine. I mean I'm interested in the way that people are talking about the cursed Child as being resonant with fan fiction, but I'm also interested in other ways we can read what's happening narratively. Mm -hmm. So let's talk more about how the narrative of this play through its production of multiple alternate timelines um, sort of introduces some, some interesting, exciting new narrative devices. You know, it's doing this thing where it's, it's teaching us more about the original books about our original characters and about our new characters within the play itself by moving them through different timelines and seeing the way that they play out in different ways. And we're going to talk about some of those in more detail in some, mm-hmm. in some later segments, but there is this really interesting way that you get to see the same characters in totally different contexts. Yeah. I think the best example is Scorpius in timeline C mm-hmm. realizing that, in a world in which Voldemort comes to power, he's a bad guy.
1: Okay, so Scorpius turns up in Timeline C and discovers that he's like a princeling of of dark magic. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody, he's like really good at sports. <gasps> <laughs> I did love that moment when Dolores Umbridge is like going through all the things that he's really good at. And he's like, sports?
3: <laughs> really? Really? Sports? But It's like, who knows how many of us would secretly be good at sports if we were adequately pressured into attempting them. I mean, not me, but... Certainly not me. No.
1: (laughs) I'm really interested in what this play is suggesting about the way in which we become who we are. Because if someone as pure a soul as Scorpius can, in another timeline be a violent like racist abuser mm-hmm. that suggests to me that this has everything to do with nurture and not just like with what your biology is it's mm-hmm. like we've talked a lot in the past about the way that the original series and the way that this that this play too kind of hinges on the idea of biology as a predeterminant for who you're going to become yeah And I and I feel like this moment where Scorpius visits timeline C and sees what he could have become Mm -hmm. really kind of throws that at the window.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's very much a nurture, not nature, like who Scorpius is, is entirely different depending on the world that he exists in.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and given a world in which he sort of enters Hogwarts with a set of assumptions already made about him, which is that he will be powerful. Um, He will, Mm -hmm. you know, he will ascend to a position of power naturally. That is the position his father shares, Mm -hmm. Um, that he will be good at everything because that's the nature of power. That's who he becomes. I mean, it reminds me, I'm I'm sure I've brought this up before, but I, (laughs) I really, I had a professor in my undergrad who during a class in which we were discussing the nature of evil in the context of Nazism Mm -hmm. suggested that, that there are just some people who have the capacity for evil and that it is the job of civil society to keep those people from having access to those forms of evil. You know, and we were, we were having this debate that like, what does the rise of Nazism prove? Does it prove that that evil is banal, which is to say that most people don't think critically about the ethical repercussions of what they're doing, that mm-hmm. they just do what everybody else is doing no matter what. Mm-hmm. That's the argument that I very much believe. Yeah. Or his perspective, which is that some people are good and some people are evil. Right. And that good people will always be good, but that evil people need to be controlled.
1: Yeah. I I mean, obviously, that's a ridiculous Idea. Maybe he just doesn't understand how ideology functions and how I, like yeah. what constitutes evil is socially determined. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> to go back to that former sort of the thing that I believe the thing that we have discussed, which is that evil is not a sort of inherent property of an individual. Voldemort's not fundamentally evil. Voldemort is a product of the society that he grows up in. Mm -hmm. And I think that thesis that we presented in our Mm -hmm. reading of the books gets reinforced in this play.
1: Yeah, we're very good readers.
3: We're so good at reading. (laughs) Uh, It shows us that our beloved Scorpius, who is so sweet and kind, Mm -hmm. if positioned in a particular way in relation to power... If told by everybody, this is how you're going to behave,
2: mm-hmm. that's how he
3: behaves. Yeah. So like what, what's interesting then is to see him return to his own timeline with the knowledge of what he might be mm-hmm. and to think about how that's then going to inform what he thinks of himself as a person.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And if there's comparable ways that we can think about our own natures, mm-hmm as products of a particular set of circumstances rather than something that is innate to us. You know, yeah. how would I be different in a different set of circumstances and how might that induce me to sort of like pause in my assumptions of about who I am as a person?
1: I know for me, I don't actually have to do a whole lot of imagining because I was a very different person before I encountered radical feminism Mm -hmm. (laughs) and saw the light and if i hadn't had the educational opportunities and by that i don't mean classrooms i mean like the the just like the friends and the peers and the workshops that i attended and and so if, if i hadn't had those experiences i wouldn't i wouldn't be the person who i am today i'd be like timeline a marcel and timeline a marcel is fundamentally less charitable and generous and a terrible ally than timeline b marcel which is me right now i guess just in like further evidence of scorpius being the best what i find so um lovely about scorpius's experience seeing who he could have been is how he how he sees that world so like he sees timeline c Mm -hmm. and recognizes that like he's got so much more privilege and so much he's so much more powerful and he's confident and he's popular but he recognizes that the world isn't better
3: when he sees Mm -hmm. that it's horrifying it's not exciting for him it's not right like oh look like i'm in a position of power it's like dear god what is this thing that i have in me
1: yeah and what he brings back to timeline a Mm -hmm. is not uber confidence although he is a little bit more confident but it's that he describes himself as being malfoy the unanxious Mm. um which i think is amazing so it's like the things that make him so endearing to us as readers remain consistent
3: yeah
1: um he doesn't allow confidence to stop him from being compassionate instead he just gets a little bit less anxious
3: yeah, he's like, I have this capacity to be a brave person. Mm-hmm. What does he learn from that experience? Is like, it's like, oh, also, I'm not inevitably the way that I am. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and that might play out in one direction as a like, <laughs> if given the right set of circumstances, you become a monster. But also, <laughs> like, oh, cool, I actually have the capacity for confidence in me. Yeah, yeah. just like non inevitability is really interesting as one of the implications of time travel Mm -hmm. in this narrative, which is particularly fascinating when you set it against the things that are framed as inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, Okay, so let's put a pin in this for a second so that you can (laughs) complain about the logic of time travel some more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this didn't occur to me. Uh, When we were talking about time travel last time, but all of a sudden what I'm really wrestling with, with this idea, again, this comes back to me just like not being able to cope with there being multiple timelines. That's just Mm -hmm. not a thing that I can wrap my head around. So Scorpius, his physical body moves from one timeline into another. So timeline C Scorpius is a real human creature, Mm -hmm. but then isn't there anymore. Mm hmm. And is replaced by this Scorpius. So here's why this confuses me so much, okay?
3: (laughs) Because time travel is not real.
1: I know, mostly because time (laughs) travel is not real. But here's what super confuses me. It presupposes that Scorpius's conception, gestation, and birth were all 100% in sync with Scorpius' timeline A's conception, gestation, and birth. Mm Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, how can the one replace the other? Yeah. They're different. Like, they have, they just are different. Ah. Yeah.
3: I mean, the assumption that, like, in this completely different universe, the same person would still exist at all is silly, right? That, like, he would have been born at the same time and have the same name and look the same. Like, that's all, that's all actually quite absurd. But that's just a narrative (laughs) conceit. Yeah the implications of Scorpius turning up in this timeline and replacing other Scorpius is also goes back to your original understanding of time travel, which is like the timelines match back up. Mm -hmm. So it's not that he's multiplied into multiple selves. It's like, there's only one of him in each timeline. So if he enters his own timeline, he replaces himself, Mm -hmm. which is like, also not how time travel works in the prisoner of Azkaban because when Harry and Hermione go back right they see the other themselves so like where is timeline c Scorpius
1: (laughs) yeah he's like out he's out making out with somebody yeah (laughs) sexy
3: okay so let's talk a little bit about some other aspects of how this whole time travel multiplying world's thing is represented let's talk about prophecy
1: okay so much like the way prophecy functions in the original series we come to learn that a prophecy does not in and of itself do anything when mm. you make a prophecy it's just words mm-hmm. what turns prophecy into a thing is, is people, when people hearing the
3: prophecy and doing it
1: yeah and so Delphi has a prophecy told to her by Mr. Bellatrix Lestrange and he is not he's not a soothsayer or a or an augury or a Mm -hmm. or a Sybil Trelawney so like Mm -hmm. is it a real prophecy or did he just like tell her who even knows (laughs) I don't know Um, but it was revealed to her and then it ends up she's not able to fulfill it Mm -hmm. despite her best attempts and so then tries to go about her project which is to save her father's life through other means. So like prophecy doesn't mean anything. Prophecy Prophecy
3: means nothing. And in fact, the revelation for her that prophecies do not have to turn out the way that they did is then the thing that allows her to go back and attempt to have things not turn out the way that they did because she realizes that they're not inevitable, Mm -hmm. which then has the crux of the narrative turn on this perverse attempt to maintain a set of events that were profoundly Mm non-inevitable that they now have to work really hard to keep the same which is to say Voldemort killing Lily and James because he thought he had to what unfolded afterwards was a result of that set of events and so now they need to force them to happen so like prophecy is like profoundly meaningless Mm -hmm. but ends up sort of Oh, it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what it does. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it does. So I guess prophecy is ideology.
1: It sounds like it.
3: Prophecy is like a way of framing the world as inevitable when it was in fact entirely... Evitable? Entirely evitable. Could have turned out anyway. But once you have framed it as inevitably that way and people believe it to be true, it becomes true... Not because it was inevitable, but because people believed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. I know. Oh. Yeah. But how?
3: <laughs> I mean, that ending, There's silly, there are sillinesses in the narrative structure of this story, but that ending in which Harry and everybody he cares about have to stand by and bear witness to his parents' death. Mm -hmm. because that's the only way that they know how to make the world that they live in have happened Mm -hmm. is so sad. Yeah. So this is the last thing I want to talk about in this section, which is this idea of bearing witness, the idea that there are some situations in the world that you cannot alter through force of will, Mm -hmm. um, that you can't sort of make better through heroic action and that the best thing that you can do is, is just stand by and bear witness to it. Mm -hmm. Like I find that ethically interesting. I think that there's a real temptation that if we know that we can't do anything about a bad situation, then we don't want to see it. We don't want to think about it. We'd rather turn a blind eye to things that we can't change Mm -hmm. because it feels too hard to look at things that are really ugly and not be able to do anything about it. Like we want to be able to fix things. We want that fantasy of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things you cannot fix. And so there is this there is this sort of ethics at work in like looking at what you cannot fix and just seeing it mm-hmm. um, and recognizing that it's, you know, it is painful and it is terrible, but like sometimes life is painful and terrible mm-hmm. and you have to just look at that. And in fact, that sort of becomes the necessary thing that Harry had to do to reunite himself with his son. You know, he's been trying too hard to sort of hide his son from the ugliness of the world and to Mm -hmm. sort of frame his heroism as being about agency. And that's what alienates Albus and what eventually sort of brings them back together is the, the pain of what neither of them could do anything to change. Yeah. Oh, what a sad story. This book is very sad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think Part of what is also really interesting about this Mm -hmm. um, in relation to time travel is that in some ways we can also think of this as functioning as a kind of metaphor for what we do with our past traumas, right? Mm -hmm. You can't change the things that you have experienced in your past. All you can really do is, is bear witness to those things. Yeah. And... What this play seems to suggest is that you get through those by having a community of people who love and trust and support you and who you can then love and trust and support in turn.
3: Yeah. In some ways, this is a story about trauma and about the sort of long history of trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, Voldemort's not coming back. Harry just hasn't been able to work through Mm -hmm. what you know that set of experience has has done to him he says at the end that you know Voldemort might be out of his life but he had yet to get him successfully out of his head yeah um, and that the thing that helps him work through that is reliving that like originary traumatic moment with his entire community around him mm-hmm. to help him right and yeah. he says you know that's that line where Delphi says to him like you're not strong enough to fight me by yourself and he's like yeah no I know I'm not but I I never fight by myself. Yeah. Right. And like that final fight is is not actually the climax. The climax is the non fight Mm -hmm. of watching his parents die and what it means to have his community there to make that possible for him to sort of work through it. And the way Mm -hmm. that sort of collectively working through that moment of trauma becomes an opportunity for that community to become closer to each other. Mm -hmm. it's really it's a really lovely story about ways that we can work collectively work through trauma okay i think i'm starting to get a handle on this doesn't need to be about creating sexy, unexpected pairings. Sexy! Fanfic can just be an opportunity to explore underwritten characters. (laughs) Like, I could write a whole novel about Snape pursuing a Master's of Education and returning to Hogwarts with a strong sense of student-based learning outcomes. Sexy! You know, come to think of it, that might be a bit of a stretch. Okay, let's talk about this for the rest of the episode. In potions class!
0: Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions?
1: Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats.
0: It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together.
1: But can it help keep us asleep?
0: It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable.
3: So I'll have more energy for yoga.
0: Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 smart bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.
3: Can we talk can we talk about Snape first?
1: Yeah, that's a great idea.
3: Nothing that has happened before. No number of Snape defendants amongst our listener base. No amount of uh, Alan Rickman's performance has redeemed snape to me as wholly as like the five pages he had in this play tell me about that it it just totally changed my perspective on him snape under dumbledore's reign so to speak has a vested interest in pretending to be on dumbledore's side Mm -hmm. both because it provides him with sort of safety within the status quo you know and then snape as a double agent has personal selfish motivations To continue to sort of do what he thinks Lily would have wanted. Mm -hmm. Even if it was selfless, it never felt politically motivated to me. And I really, really appreciate this play textualizes exactly that. Mm -hmm. Like it acknowledges that he started with these really selfish motives, Mm -hmm. right? He says on page 193, I couldn't save Harry for Lily. So now I give my allegiance to the cause she believed in. And it's possible that along the way I started believing in it myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference that I really struggled with is like Snape as somebody who actually believes in this cause, which is like Mm anti-fascist versus Snape as somebody who's like going through the motions for the sake of this love. And Snape like 20 years later, which is where we're seeing him now, Mm -hmm as a much older man who has continued to live under Voldemort's reign to work at Hogwarts. But now that there's really nothing in it for him has continued to commit himself to this cause, um, has continued to hold these things close to him and who given a renewed set of circumstances remains the kind of person who would sacrifice himself Mm -hmm. Because he does have this sense of what is right. And a sense that has become more so the longer he has lived with it. Right. Yeah. I found that a convincing version of him. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a, like he was a noble hero the entire time. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just that his attachment to Lily provides him with a starting point for being resistant to what's going on around him. Mm-hmm. The Snape that I saw in this play was somebody who is no longer doing it for those selfish reasons mm-hmm. but who continues to be that same kind of person yeah right like somebody who would give himself for this
1: cause and and he continues to do that without being under dumbledore's thumb
3: yeah like he's
1: yeah. he's no longer anybody's lackey he's very clearly and genuinely invested in this cause yeah i don't know
3: I don't know I really like this play really did something for me Mm -hmm. in terms of this character
1: I guess when I read this play and saw Snape sacrificing himself so so heroically in this way all I could really think about were all of the people who like finally who finally got to to see Snape play the hero and not just hear about him being the hero secondhand yeah. I thought that was special.
3: Speaking of revisiting mm-hmm. familiar teachers, mm-hmm. I would like to chat a little bit about the revisiting with Dumbledore, sure. the scene in which Harry has a conversation with Dumbledore through the painting. So there's this sort of interesting through line in this play about shitty parenting and what it does to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how much shitty parenting both our heroes and our villains have received. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, really... Delphi's tragedy is deliberately held up against Harry's. Mm -hmm. They were both orphans. Mm -hmm. They were both incredibly lonely. And Delphi thinks that she can change that by finding her father that she won't have that that intense experience of loneliness which is why in that scene when when harry says to her he says you can't remake your life you'll always be an orphan that never leaves you Mm -hmm. right which is this really profound statement on harry's part for like how deeply after everything he still has that that experience of loss as his origin story Mm -hmm. and the end of the play does show us that that that's the way that it has to be but it It also shows us what parts of that were not inevitable Mm -hmm. in that scene where Harry confronts Dumbledore and says, like, you actually didn't have to treat me the way that you did. Um, You actually could have been a better father to me. Mm -hmm. You know, and the confrontation, Dumbledore sort of stumbling to justify himself and then Harry saying, you would have hurt me less if you had told me this then. Despite all of the tragedy and inevitability that surrounded us, you could have just like verbalized your love for me and that would have changed a lot of stuff. It's a really, it's a really profound sort of counter to the aspects of the story that emphasize what's inevitable. Mm -hmm. So like some of these losses are just losses that you can't change. But like, hey, look, here's a thing that you can change. You just like tell the people in your life that you love them.
1: Yeah
3: all of these children just desperately need somebody to be kind to them
1: yeah and if we look at the two draco malfoys we see draco malfoy in timeline c where presumably his parents never had to like reckon with the possibility that they were going to lose him right Mm -hmm. like we don't exactly know how the wizarding wars would have played out differently but we know that they did differently yeah and so that timeline c draco He turns into his father, essentially, and he treats Scorpius very much in the same way that Lucius treated him. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what that's saying to us is that without parents reaching out to their kids, without parents, like, showing their children that they love them and not just, like, Mm -hmm. that they want the best for them, whatever that means in any particular circumstance, that, like, you, like, that's what turns your children into monsters. (laughs)
3: Let's all just start using The Cursed Child as a parenting manual.
1: Yeah. Or like, what what not not to do. What not to do.
3: How not to parent. (laughs) Not sure how to do it right, but don't do any of these things. Yeah.
1: Probably the best thing about fan fiction is the way it lets you push back against the default assumptions of whiteness, heterosexuality, and other kinds of normativity that are actually super duper oppressive. Sexy! So let's take a walk outside hegemony in The Forbidden Forest. I
3: was trying to figure out a way to build a joke in there about how this play really shows us how radical fan fiction can be by continuing to recenter to white men. <laughs>
1: okay so this is another section where we have like a number of things that we want to go through so let's start with voldemort being a father yeah
3: so that's we got a ton of questions about this in the wp curious child hashtag this is the thing that i think people have expressed the most doubt about it seems so unlikely to people that voldemort would have had a child. And so there's two ways that people have expressed that doubt. One way is just at the sort of narrative slash character level. So mm-hmm. Voldemort is obsessed with immortality. Why would he have a child if he believes he is going to live forever? Mm-hmm. So let's deal with that first. Does that seem unlikely to you that this that this evil figure who's obsessed with making himself immortal would somehow impregnate one of his followers?
1: It does seem very unlikely to me. Reproduction does not seem in keeping with Voldemort's character to me for like a host of reasons, but not least of which is the fact that Voldemort has never expressed any interest in offspring of any kind. Mm -hmm. And his lack of interest in relating to others suggests to me a lack of interest in having others like him. And one of the things that people say about having children is that you like want to bring more people into the world like you. And Voldemort, he's a lone wolf.
3: You know, he's not trying to reproduce himself via a right-hand man or like a lieutenant kind of figure who he tries. Like, he actually tries to sort of crush down mm-hmm. everybody around him. Yeah. Even that image of him, you know, in Timeline C having the augury as his sort of right-hand man seems a little unlikely. Mm-hmm. Because would he share power in that way?
1: Absolutely. Like that seems equally incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Do we have any particular reason to actually believe that Delphine is his child?
1: I don't think so. I see no reliable textual evidence to this effect. And similarly, zero believable textual evidence that Delphine is even the daughter of Bellatrix.
3: Yeah, there's no reason to believe any of it. All you know is that this is what she was told. Mm -hmm. And then that goes back to that, like, the way that prophecy produces itself, that somebody told her, this is who you are, this is what you're meant to do. Mm -hmm. And she buys it and she structures her entire life around it. Yeah. But there's no reason to assume that that is actually the
1: case. In fact, we don't even know that Delphi was ever told this. That's just what she's telling us and the other characters, right? she like this is this is the backstory that she provides but Mm -hmm. we have no reason to even believe her we know she's a liar Mm -hmm. so why would we believe her about this
3: i mean she's clearly unhinged so this could just be you know she was a sad lonely orphan Mm -hmm. and this is a story that she told herself that she was the heir to voldemort yeah you know when andrea and i were talking about who's the next voldemort and the sort of inevitability of there being an next voldemort We were talking in particular about how aspects of the world that produced the first Voldemort have not changed. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the context in which Delphi was produced as the next one, which is that the wizarding world continued to be set up around these structures of like who's in and who's out, who's welcomed and who's not welcomed. Mm -hmm. And she felt lonely and estranged from everybody around her. Mm -hmm. This play tells us very clearly that isolation produces certain kinds of personality Voldemort was lonely and isolated Draco was lonely and isolated he reproduced for himself a son that was lonely and isolated Mm -hmm. like that's what again nurture not nature yeah like Delphi was turned into another Voldemort through what happened to her as a child. Mm -hmm. So there's one piece of it. There's sort of one half of the answer to the like, Mm -hmm. you know, Delphi is Voldemort's child is that we have no particular reason at any level to believe it. Right. But the other piece is the way that I saw a lot of people talking about this idea about not really buying Voldemort, having a child was in this, like it's so icky to imagine Voldemort having sex
2: Mm.
3: or You know, LOL, does he even have a penis? This kind of, Mm. this kind of like shaming of Voldemort that I found very, very strange and honestly kind of distasteful. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on you guys, because I know that we all fall into these things all the time, you know, fall into this language and into these tropes and that we came very close to some similar ways of talking about Voldemort when we were talking about him as an effeminate or asexual Mm -hmm. villain. That, you know, it is hard to imagine Voldemort having sex. That is true about the way that he is produced for us textually as mm-hmm. a villain. But that that then slides so easily into a like, he's not manly enough to have a child. Mm. Into this sort of disgust with the idea of him biologically reproducing. As though biological reproduction is synonymous with sexual desire Mm -hmm. with virility as though the only sort of male sexed people who could biologically reproduce are those whose gender performance conforms to expectations of masculinity Mm -hmm. which is to say that Voldemort does not present as masculine in a way that is at all recognizable to people and therefore he can't have biologically reproduced right and that's not how that works
1: yeah and i think too in what you're describing there's also a sense of like conflating biological reproduction with being normal yeah and because voldemort is not normal and does not operate through normative sexuality he can't reproduce and it's huh. icky to think about him reproducing because we associate very specific heteronormative sexual practices with reproduction. And anything that falls outside of that is weird or threatening or unbelievable in a mm-hmm. in a whole host of ways.
3: Yeah. So Voldemort's like part of the way he's cast as a villain is through this sort of the vilification of asexuality, the vilification mm-hmm. of the eunuch figure, um, mm-hmm. you know, which we've talked through and we've talked through it particularly on Twitter with our listeners who've pointed out how the asexual figure and the eunuch figure often reappear as villains because of how a failure to perform traditional forms of heterosexuality is conflated with villainy mm-hmm. in our oppressively heteronormative patriarchal world. Mm-hmm. But this sort of, to then take that and say like, it's laughable to think of Voldemort having a child actually reproduces the same set of tropes Mm -hmm. that resulted in voldemort being represented the way he is in the first place yes we need to take this particular kind of step back and be like when i doubt that voldemort could have a child how am i taking for granted the oppressive stereotypes that are being used to depict voldemort as a villain in the first place
1: Mm mm-hmm funny how things come full circle like that, huh?
3: Man, they sure do. So there you go. So I don't think it makes narrative sense to picture Voldemort wanting to have a kid. I agree with that critique. I don't think narratively, we need to assume that it's true that Voldemort Mm -hmm. had a child. And three, I think that we need to be cautious about how we express our doubt about Voldemort having a child in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky little tangle of a narrative situation that this play has created.
1: Yes. Okay. So while we are talking about normativity and the heteropatriarchal structures in which we operate, why don't we also talk about the default of whiteness? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that thing. So... So our mutual friend, Chris Chang and Phillips, texted me one day to say, hey, did you know that the actor who plays the Sorting Hat and Hagrid is also black and there was no international outcry about that? And I was like, whoa. yeah." (laughs) So I think it is extremely exciting that the actor who plays a man who is part giant is black. Because I think that so much in our fantasy literature and in our fantasy films and now also fantasy plays, whenever we have a fantastic character, they default to white unless mm-hmm. their racial or ethnic makeup is in some way part of their fantasticalness right yeah so with the goblins their semiticness is part of what makes them goblins and with the centaurs in the film the indigenous tropes that they use to create the centaurs are used to like represent their naturalness and their like Mm -hmm. wildness and non-civilizedness right yeah whereas like in the fucking lord of the rings movies the Uh. the elves are like the whitest thing you've ever seen right
3: so white and the racialized characters are are monstrous
1: exactly like we don't we at this time live in a world that is so steeped in white supremacy that even in our fantastic creatures the default is white it is impossible to imagine and it's obviously not impossible huge scare quotes around impossible it's impossible to imagine like racially diverse elves. We come back to this
3: whenever we do Jew Watch. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Jew Watch.
1: (laughs) There's some goblins referenced in this part of the play. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But like the larger point that we're making there is the way that fantasy tropes are steeped in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And then get depoliticized by fans of fantasy who just say like, oh, well, this is just a fantasy trope, Mm -hmm. as though those things emerged out of thin air and Mm -hmm. didn't emerge out of a world. Claire and I were talking about this yesterday, about the way that people defend fantasy worlds by saying, well, that's just how it is, Mm -hmm. as though that world wasn't invented by somebody who could have invented it differently.
1: Yeah. Okay, so to get sort of back to talking about Hagrid, I guess the reason why I was so tickled to discover that Chris Jarman plays Hagrid is because he happens to be part giant and his blackness is not the motivator behind that. Mm -hmm. Right. It is that he is a partially fantastical figure who happens to be black. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is something that we are in desperate need of. And it would be so great If more mainstream fantasy writers could start doing that. Yes. (sighs) Hardcore yes. Oh, but also while we're on this topic, maybe we should have a conversation about why it is that um, Hagrid being played by a black actor wouldn't cause an international outcry in the way that Hermione, played by a black actress, does. I think part of it is the fact that if Hermione is black, then Ron and Hermione have an interracial relationship. That is Mm -hmm. very threatening to a lot of white people.
3: Yeah. I mean, Hagrid's not one of our main characters in the same way. Mm -hmm. Part of it, I think, is just like a protagonist issue. And I think what happened for a lot of white readers, you know, when they found out Hermione was being cast as black, was like, how dare you? I defaulted to assuming that she was the same as me because that's a privilege I always have. Mm -hmm. And you're taking that away from me. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm sure far fewer readers imaginatively place themselves in the position of Hagrid.
1: Yeah. Like, the old
3: relatability trap.
1: Yeah. So I don't actually know what the ethnographic makeup of the angry racists is, but I'm curious whether a lot of them were angry white young women who really identified with Hermione because of the lack of sub- substantial female characters in mainstream narratives, maybe. Yeah. Not an excuse, ladies. No. No. And
3: of course, let's not forget the absolutely number one most important thing about fan fiction the triumphant recentering of Hermione Granger as the true hero of the Harry Potter stories. Sexy! Granger Danger! So let's talk about Timeline C, Hermione. Timeline C, Hermione is obviously the best. Yeah. So like we talked about Hermione as spinster and our issues with Hermione as spinster in the last episode. Mm-hmm. But this one really counters that. It shows us that like a childless, unmarried Hermione is not inevitably a spinster. Mm-hmm. She was just a spinster in this one particular Set of circumstances because in timeline C she is a revolutionary, mm-hmm. and the stage directions make it very clear to us that like she looks good. Hermione thrives as a revolutionary, mm-hmm. perhaps more so than any of the other identities we've seen her in. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fascinating to think that like if there is a calling that she had, it was to be a warrior.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know what else that suggests is that the thing that is the most Toxic to like Hermione as a powerful figure is just like banal heteronormativity.
3: Yeah, that like what makes her bitter in Timeline B is not having an unfulfilling life, but being unmarried and childless in this really boring world where Mm -hmm. that's the expectation and that's the status quo. Yeah. She's unfulfilled because she has no venue for her own remarkableness. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. You know,
3: in timeline A, she's running things. Mm -hmm. And in timeline C, she's in this position of like constantly having to sort of work against the status quo. Mm -hmm. And both of those give her adequate outlet for just like her sheer quantity of brilliance.
1: Mm -hmm. Maybe the heteropatriarchy should be crushed sexy (laughs) maybe we would all be happier even if it's crushed by totalitarianism we'd still be happier
3: (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the degree to which totalitarianism does or does not crush the heteropatriarchy in timeline c okay because hermione
1: and ron are still in love I mean you can't help who you love, Hannah. <laughs> okay, so Hermione and Ron are still in love, but they don't bother with normative expressions of romance. <laughs> I guess what I guess what what thrills me about this timeline so much or about my ability to read this as being outside the boundaries of normative heteropatriarchal relationship structures is that Hermione and Ron still love each other deeply and are still able to, like, take care of each other and thrive together and live and work together, but in a way that is so completely opposite to how we understand relationships to function under a system of heteronormative patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It
3: might be a revelation to Ron that Hermione loves him because Mm -hmm. when she says that she loves him and has always loved him he's surprised Mm -hmm. but you know the fact of the matter is that that intimacy remained Mm -hmm. that they you know they continued to work together they continued to be close partners through this entire business when there was no time Mm -hmm. or space for traditional forms of relationships
1: and I mean like there might have been some time yeah (laughs) yeah
3: I really like how between the three timelines, Hermione is the one who gets the most variety. Like mm-hmm. Ron is pretty Ronish from timeline to timeline. He's like a little more beaten down in one than the other, a little more conservative. Mm-hmm. And Harry's just alive or not. Ooh. Yeah, but like Hermione becomes these radically different people from timeline to mm-hmm. timeline. And that's so interesting to me because it suggests so much more potential in her as a person Mm -hmm. that she has so many completely different things that she could turn out to be, Mm -hmm. you know, she's not stuck on this, on this one very particular path.
1: Hermione is as minister of magic. Like Hermione loves like rules and organization and I'm sure she's very happy Mm -hmm. in that role. But I bet that I bet that that role is a lot less fulfilling Mm -hmm. than being a revolutionary.
3: I bet. Did her portrayal in this play shift anything? Any of your thoughts about her? Any of your impressions of her as a character? No.
1: Should it have? Did it for you? (laughs) <laughs> no, okay. no, it
3: felt very, very in key. I'm trying to think of like their characters, who my perception of them was changed through watching how they played out. Snape is one, Draco is one. Mm-hmm. You know that I sort of learned new things about them, and they became complicated in really productive ways for me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how like watching Hermione through all these different timelines, I still felt like yes, this is the Hermione that I know and love.
2: Mm-hmm. Aww.
1: You know, when it comes down to it, fan fiction is all about wresting narrative control out of the hands of the author and putting it back where it belongs, with the readers. Sexy! In that spirit, let's let our listeners take the reins and answer some of their pressing questions in final revisions. So we're uh,
3: plumbing a bit more from the WP Curious Child hashtag that we put out and answering a few more mm-hmm. questions that people had. And we're going to start with, what
1: do you think about Cedric turning out to be a Death Eater? Yeah, I really struggle with this one because I think if anything in this play is going to feel fan y to me, it's going to be Cedric turning into a Death Eater because it feels so out of the character that I know yeah. from the original series. That one feels so much like a reimagining.
3: It just feels kind of like a betrayal to me.
1: It does. Yeah, to yeah. me too. And I've been really like, I've been really working with this idea and tr- trying to make it make mm-hmm. sense. And the only thing that I can come up with is the notion of toxic masculinity, which is a thing that is real. And it is a thing that is present in the original mm-hmm. series but that Cedric never expressed because he was always so handsome and popular and never needed to fall back on toxic masculinity mm. tropes, yeah. right? And so it it only becomes believable to me that he could become a Death Eater if people turned on him and ridiculed him for his poor performance, in which case it's not humiliation that makes Cedric into a death eater. It's a culture of toxic masculinity. We're popular men, especially men who are like beloved and successful, all of a sudden lose the foundation of those privileges mm-hmm. and end up being taken down a few notches so that they're, they're just as weak as everybody yeah. else.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. It then makes it Really interesting that humiliation is the strategy that Albus and Scorpius choose because it suggests that they like recognize that that like that's the Mm -hmm. worst thing that can happen in the context of toxic masculinity is like the worst thing Mm -hmm. that can happen to you is to be humiliated because you can rest assured that everybody will respond in a particular way to Mm -hmm. your emasculation.
1: Yeah, it's like that Margaret Atwood quote that men are afraid women will make fun of them and women are afraid men will kill them. Oh, God, the patriarchy is so broken. Ugh, yeah. Uh, Masculinity is a trap.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of masculinity being a trap, let's Mm -hmm. talk about a narrative trap that we are set, which is... The fact that Delphi is a daughter and not a son, Mm -hmm. which seems to be structured to surprise us.
1: Yeah. So I need to admit that it surprised me. I think I I mentioned this to you when we were recording last time, but we didn't Mm -hmm. put it in the episode because it was a big spoiler. But the whole time I was reading, I was like, Delphi's got to be someone. I wonder who she is. There's something up with Delphi. Meanwhile, a subplot about who Voldemort's child might be is happening. And I never put those two together because Mm -hmm. I am so steeped in the expectations of patriarchy that it never occurred to me that Delphi could be Voldemort's daughter. (laughs) That
3: was a reveal. (laughs) Because you think, you know, the child of Voldemort, the heir of Voldemort. And when you think of an heir, you think of a son. Yeah. Because that's how inheritance has worked. Yeah. Like in the history of our patriarchal culture, mm-hmm. that the one who inherits things is obviously a male child. Yeah. I do agree with what some listeners have proposed, which is that that was being deliberately played on. You were being deliberately set up to assume masculinity so that it could be a surprise mm-hmm. when it turned out to be Delphi.
0: Yeah. Um,
3: and I actually cannot remember now. Whether I was surprised or not, I remember suspecting that it was her before it was revealed. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I have a tendency to retcon these things in my own head.
2: <gasps> mm, okay. And,
3: like, once I actually know how a narrative turned out, to then go back and be like, I always knew that was how it was going to turn out.
1: Right, 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 right,
3: So that's why I, I often record my reading process as I'm going to, like, keep mm. myself reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was telling you earlier that I often record where I cry. as I'm reading because after the fact I like won't remember having felt that way in that scene so um so I actually can't say one way or the other but like I absolutely agree with some listeners reading of that as having been set up to surprise us do you think that there's any other significance in her being a daughter not a son
1: um so what I think is really interesting about that question is that I think that for some people it is really significant Mm -hmm. that it's a daughter not a son for me it doesn't matter like
3: I don't see gender
1: I don't see it (laughs) I'm gender blind no I guess for me like it's not like a striking narrative change for it to be a daughter it doesn't shake up my worldview (laughs) even though I was able to be surprised by it I'm almost like embarrassed that I was surprised by it. And it's not like this is a series that has had a lack
3: of significant female characters.
1: Exactly, yeah. But I can totally see how this would be a really significant world shaking up for some people who are able to see strong, powerful women as villains in the form of Dolores Umbridge, who is like an undersecretary. Uh-huh. But to actually bring Voldemort back, or to, for all intents and purposes, be the next Voldemort, Mm -hmm. for that to be a female character, I can see how that would, like, be really remarkable for some people.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is, it is nice. I am glad that they, like, shook up the sort of main heroes and villains are always men thing, Mm -hmm. reminding us that, like, women, women also have boundless capacities for evil. (laughs) white feminists and white feminism can sometimes get very comfy in the like women have also been oppressed therefore we cannot be the oppressors that dynamic Mm -hmm. um which is bullshit because white women have absolutely strategically sided with white supremacy in incredibly Mm -hmm. violent ways and with colonialism and and imperialism and all kinds of terrible things Mm -hmm. um so to have delphi as our villain i think is an important reminder that like white women can still do really monstrous things
2: yeah um, totally agree and can
3: can absolutely side themselves with these really violent systems mm-hmm. so just in case we needed that reminder mm-hmm.
1: final question final question okay hannah who is the cursed child
3: I think that this is deliberately ambiguous. What? Yes.
1: Oh my God.
3: (laughs) I think it's meant to be legible as applicable to multiple characters in the book. I think Mm -hmm. on one level, it's evoking the question of who is Voldemort's heir, Mm -hmm. right? Like the cursed child was Voldemort's heir. But we're also, I think encouraged to read the cursed child as being albus Mm -hmm. who's sort of living under the oppressive memory of his father Mm -hmm. the cursed child is scorpius both because he is maybe voldemort's heir and because whether or not he is that's also the curse he's living under Mm -hmm. and the cursed child is delphi because Mm -hmm. The inheritance that she has, whether real or just something she's been told, as it turns out, it doesn't matter um, because she is also living under that. And then we can sort of expand it outwards. The Cursed Child with Harry, Mm -hmm. the Cursed Child with Draco. Like, so many of these characters are cursed (laughs) children in the sense that they were set up in these situations that, like, damaged them in ways that they will carry with them through their lives.
1: Ooh, I think the Cursed Child could also be Panju because he doesn't exist anymore.
3: (laughs) It's only Panju. No, you found the answer. It's him.
1: (laughs) Nailed it. He only exists under a certain set of circumstances and so briefly. And now no more.
3: Aren't we all the Cursed Child?
1: Good question, Hannah. Good Uh, question.
3: And it's interesting to then compare that to the cover art which is so so different from the cover art of all of the other books in all the other editions because the cover art has a tendency to be very literal yeah to be images from the story particular scenes whereas this is figurative there is no child in a nest that's true
1: i mean unless it's delphi it's affiliated with delphi because
3: of the bird imagery for sure
1: yeah
3: right yeah. she's the augury Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that's the strongest reading is that delphi is the cursed child Mm -hmm. but the figurativeness of that image combined with the fact that the phrase cursed child was never uttered in the play i think deliberately leaves it much more open than any of the other book titles which all refer to very very specific things Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for episode 15B of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are, as always, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. While you're at it, don't forget to rate or review us. It's the second best form of advertising. You know what the best form is? Declaring your nerdery far and wide by sporting a sweet piece of merch. Take a look at society6.com slash please or the link on our website to see what's available.
1: Special thanks as always to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts.
3: Hi, how are you doing?
1: And extra special thanks to everyone who's been tweeting at us jade constable last alt ms megan cyclone chloe effion g strictly pod el bourgon p scriptorium girl caveats decorum taylor w driggers oswin team hobbyhorse the ACDB, Asha Hurton, Kiss Me Hardy, Rach Rach, Vic Jones, Stefocracy, SG Wingo, Sarah Sherwood, Laura Bang, PGH in Red, Say Wooster, Triceratop, Molly Flood, Kingslam, Mars' Wisdom, Matt L.A. Schneider, A Gold Ship, Virginia Woolf, just Malins Yasmin Hilliam, Emma H. Barker, Instant Dreams, Duchess Cadbury, Sophie Biblio, Karina Sorus, all of the things. Lily actually, Ranged Lunatic, McKinney James, Mad Peterson, Smaracuya, Veronica UK, Student of Wim, Masha Dutois, Army Boy 0787. Rosie Morgan 96 J.G. Fool Amanda Finlaw Natalia Kismet Chillin Kristen Anna Mulligan 7 Pewter Wolf 13 H.P. Sacred Text Mayao Nana Luna M.W. Boyce Hello Alex Tamar Atkinson Mimi Roning Sophie Peppy, Curious Fox Books H. Cassidy Bronwyn Fay, Ashley R. Gillery. Katarina Hoven Emily Hoven X626 Mad Hat 106 Liz Faw, Honking Daffodil Alan Matley She Makes Podcast Alyssa KB Mar Shameless which is my stage name Fandom's Teapot Liza Kate All Mad Here 27 CC Streeter RK McKinnon Ever Sarah Mara Bobera Marose Hannah the Lulu True Terry Lee McGarry After Three Pytra Noof Jess O'Callaghan Heidi Pett Sasha Purvis Random Hyper One Claire Rousseau Jenny Cecile Lavenderist Ud Book Foggy Day Studio Hello Jenny Tao Theo Potterhead Belu 397 Courtney alise Hello Ali J Nakona 89 Pow Pow 13 Vigneur, Dwindle Bunny, Alexandra Koch, Livy Flynn, Beth H.M.W., Rent a Good Book, B.R. Papa, Sweet Love Books, Chloe Mercer, Space Hamster, Master Sen Senpai, Akiko Tree 8, Trixie Dalek, Megan Andy, Are You Listening?, Elsie Kate 10, Slither Claudgy, Amy Liz, Schneider Anne C, The Purple Coffee, I Am Golden Holden, Women at Warp, Meryl Kate, Seapers D, My Book Jacket, Lee Bick, Sierra Love, Monobo, Pink Lemonade, Jane Burgess, Hannah Jade, Rosemary Pip, Kat Morissette, Thomas J. Bayless, Sof's Why Not, Emily Sargent, Caitlin Sykes, Amy Ripley, J.V. Purcell, Literary Elena, Rinnick88, Lloyd Pancakes, and Moon of Morris. I really thought that the Twitter list would be shorter this time. I was wrong we are
3: back in minisode mode for a while witches so this is a good time to let us know if there are any topics you're just burning for us to touch on sexy but until
1: then later witches